Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand what your company is worth and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business, build a valuable company to be proud of, and exit on your terms. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 158. My guest today's name is Mike Michalowicz, and Mike sold two companies by the time he was 35. He sold one company to a private equity firm, and then a second company he ended up growing into the multi-million dollar range as well, who then he sold to Robert Half. But that's not the best part of this story. What happened to Mike afterwards with his story of having to lose all of his money and his daughter offering up to give her piggy bank to Mike changed his life where then he turned around and then created this system called Profit First. So if you've not heard of the book, it's amazing. He's got an entire cult-like following for the right reasons. He's had 150,000 people that have implemented Profit First. He's also the author of a bunch of other books, Surge, The Pumpkin Plan, his newest release, which is Clockwork. And Mike's mission is to help entrepreneurs simplify what it means in their life and their business to run a company and make money, pay themselves, create a more valuable company. It's literally just amazing. And the reason that I was so excited to have Mike on the show is one is when I was listening to his book, his jokes throughout the book is totally my sense of humor. So I was just super excited to have him on. But the true fundamentals of what he is preaching is near and dear to my heart because I watched what it's like to not take profit first. And the definition of what we were going through when we were factoring our receivables is proof of that. We juggled cash flow for the entire time that we were running our family business. So we were surviving and thriving, but we the profit, the cash just sucked out of the business. And so we juggled our cash flow all the way to the end of the, the goal line. But you know, when you look at the numbers, all the accountants and all the financial people are saying, oh, you're fine, but that doesn't mean you're cash rich. So Mike is here on this show today to explain the profit first system, how that can help potentially increase the value of your company by 400% because you're creating a cash machine and who wouldn't want that? You might not want to sell, but any buyer is going to want to buy you. And the reason I think this episode is so important is because in a couple episodes ago, Jack Stack talks about us needing to be financially literate, build a game off of that so we can be profitable and we can play the right game. Sue talks about being vulnerable, reaching out and telling people you need help because 
So much of our world as entrepreneurs is driven around ego and analyzing each other by our top line revenue, the amount of employees that we have. But if we admit that, hey, we're juggling cash, we're trying to survive. Yeah, you might have 150 employees or 200 employees or 10 employees. It doesn't matter. If you admit that, okay, today's the day that I'm going to start making money. I'm going to do the things for the right reasons. I'm not going to use my gut and my instinct. I'm going to build a machine. It takes work, but Mike's system is driven based on behavior. So this is going to adhere right into what it's like to be as an entrepreneur. And then you can stop judging yourself around everybody else because I swear, take it from my own word when I have seen inside the balance sheets of hundreds and hundreds of businesses that there's not a lot out there that make money. So if you're not making money, you can't have a value company. And if you don't have a valuable company, you can't get what you want. So if you're making profit and you're trying to figure out what the value of your company is and what your exit options are, check out our boot camps on arcona.io. We have one coming out in October that in Minnesota, that's 8th, 9th, and 10th, three-day boot camp on the five growth and exit planning principles and how to level the world of M&A. And then again, a date in Ohio on November 12th, 13th, and 14th. If you want to know more information, what's on the agenda, the curriculum, it's all on our website, arcona.io. Three days full of all the information that you need to ask the questions, understand valuations, understand how to hire a team of advisors, understand how to do an analysis on all the different exits, and then how to increase the value of your company once you have profit to literally go get what you want. So without further ado, here's my episode and interview with Mike Michalowicz. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Three days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Three days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of the journey. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Ryan. How you doing, brother? I, I'm very excited for this uh, for this 45 minutes because of one is that your profit first system and all the stuff that you you're so unbelievably genuine and authentic of all the stuff that you've gone through and what you're doing for people. I, and I'm excited to get into the meat of it. But also, as you and I were joking around, literally love your sense of humor that you were had rolling through the, the Profit First um, audiobook. So if, if owners don't like that, then the listeners will, they, the only reason they're tuning in is because I enjoy that kind of stuff too. <laughs> no, that's all. Yeah, we sound like we're cut from the exact same cloth. So <laughs> I, I appreciate you tolerating some of that crazy stuff I read about. <laughs> I love it. So, you know, it, you you have an unbelievable following that since you've built this system over the last handful of years. And yeah. like, I looked at your book. I mean, like how many reviews you have? And I, it, it just shows that yeah. one, that you created something that's truly needed and that people are actually adhering to because of you wouldn't have that. You can't manufacture those kind of um, reviews and stuff. So, you know, people that have maybe not been familiar with this, but let's go back, Mike, your story in the piggy bank and how you, you know, cause a lot of the people that have been on this show, they bought and sold, we talk about the growth and all that, but like yeah. what your, your experiences led you to a completely different outcome. So maybe, why don't you maybe just give a the highlight version up to that piggy bank um, experience. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, I've been an entrepreneur the entirety of my adult life and uh, I started a business right out of college, built it and sold it to private equity. And, uh, but, and just here's what's important because, because that sounds like, oh, wow, actually, that's not a bad start. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I struggled with profit. It was actually never really profitable. I, I refinanced my house a couple of times to maintain that business, but conveniently on my resume, I just put, you know, sold company to private equity. <laughs> my second business was in computer crime investigation and I bootstrapped it 
but it just launched. In retrospect, it was right place, right time. Uh, two and a half years, we're in a $7 million run, and then a Fortune 500 called Robert Half International. They own like account temps, office temps. Mm-hmm. They acquired my company. And I'm now in my early 30s, and, and I became a self-made millionaire. And I'm like, I'm, I'm God's gift to entrepreneurship, like totally <laughs> full of myself. And um, that, that business, that second business, again, never profitable, was all about growing, growing, was hand-to-mouth survival. Um, actually, as the business got bigger, it was more stressful because as you have more sales, there's more obligation placed upon your business. You got to deliver on it and more, more cash coming in, but way more cash going out. And uh, when I sold it, I was like, oh, that's the key to becoming wealthy is to pump and dump companies. So that one goes on my resume, you know, sold to Fortune 500. The third company is conveniently off my resume. I, I started a, a firm as an angel investor with the money I had made selling my two previous companies and decided I'll start 10 companies simultaneously <laughs> as an angel because now I can just like pump and dump like crazy. And, you know, hello, Richard Branson number two is walking in the room. <laughs> and um, all those businesses collapsed. I, I was full of arrogance and ignorance, which the definition of that's a dick. I was a dick. And uh, hey, um, I, I had no right to be in the space. I didn't know what I was doing. And these businesses didn't even complement each other. They were just, one of them was like a precursor to a Blue Apron. It was a food mm-hmm. delivery through FedEx and stuff. Another one was a fitness business. Another one was in jewelry manufacturing. It was like all over the place. And um, one was a leather manufacturer. And uh, they all collapsed, except for one. Uh, but it barely sustained. And I evaporated all my wealth, everything I had accumulated within two years, spending frivolously, like, you know, getting the cars. I had a Dodge Viper because that's what uh, cool guys have, which, by the way, is not what cool guys have. That's called the Trophy of Dicks is the Dodge <laughs> Viper. That's, that's what I you have a Hummer park next to it? Please tell me. Yeah, I mean, it was just it was all about show. You know, that loud, obnoxious car. And um, got a house in Hawaii to go on sabbatical with my family. And all this stuff. And um, two years later, every penny's gone. I get a call from my accountant. I had logically saw my account dwindling fast, but it's weird. Like, I, well, I saw it dwindling logically, emotionally, I couldn't accept it. Mm-hmm. I thought that moment would come that, you know, another investor would buy out my wonderful angel investing business. And uh, this time no one did. My accountant calls me and says, Mike, I never thought you'd be the guy I'm doing this call to, but is my professional recommendation declare personal bankruptcy. You're, you're done. And um, just a f- little footnote, I never did. I, I, th- I felt that the hole I dug is not the responsibility of my debt, you know, my creditors. Like even these are, you know, credit card companies I didn't know, it's not their responsibility. I'm the one who was blowing money. So I say I dig my way out, but I had to immediate and drastic measures to make that a reality. So we had to get rid of our house. We lost it 30 days later. Uh, our car, all the possessions had to go and we had to cut back our life massively. Lost the office, moved into my own basement uh, in a rental uh, that was next to the furnace. It was the only space that we had available. And I'd be on a phone call and you're boom, 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 boom as the furnace is starting up. And I had to come home to my wife and three children on the day I got this news from my accountant and tell them about the drastic measures we're about to take. And I'm sitting there in front of my family. I'm, and it's not like I'm like joyful and happy. I'm sobbing, ashamed, embarrassed. I've been lying to my wife and children by omission. Like I was just saying, everything's fine. Everything's good. Yeah. And um, I'm like, I'm so sorry. We're, we're losing this. I had to look my daughter in the eyes. And this was the crushing moment. She was nine. And I said, I'm so sorry. Uh, you can't go to horseback riding lessons anymore. I can't afford it. And her, her eyes welled up. She started crying. And she just stood up and just started to run away. And... Um, that's the devastating moment for me because 
My own family member was so scared and disgusted by me that she had to run away from me. And uh, I I respected that. I I get it. Um, But I was so ashamed. Uh, The thing is, I wanted to run away. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. when you're your darkest moment, like that's the solution to run away. So I respected that. But here's the thing. She did not actually run away. She was running to her bedroom to grab her piggy bank. And this little nine-year-old girl, my daughter, comes up to me. She goes, Daddy, Daddy, since you can no longer provide for us, I'll be the provider. And um, she pops this piggy bank down. It was, it, the piggy bank was wrapped in duct tape and rubber bands. And it had never broken. She did this because she didn't want a robber <laughs> to steal from her. She was, saving to, <laughs> she was saving to buy a horse. And she wanted, you know, every time she made a nickel or a dime, she would put it in there. And this was going to be her life's mission was to own a horse one day. And she decided to give up on her life's dream at nine to save her idiot father. And um, I'm just, and I'm still ashamed about that. My behavior, my arrogance, my stupidity. I, I'm now grateful for that moment because that became a turning moment for me. I, it wasn't like the next morning, by the way, Ryan, I woke up and like, I've got it all figured out. Now I know that, uh, you know, what the solution is to all entrepreneurial things. I actually went through two years of depression, uh, became a drinker, not, you know, to, to throw back a beer or two, but to really to medicate myself. And I uh, was an insomniac and um, remove myself from any social setting. And um, that moment that was planted a seed that I didn't understand entrepreneurship. I, I was, did not have the Midas touch. I didn't know much at all. I was just lucky and fortunate in some cases and hard work in other cases, but didn't, didn't understand the core philosophies of what define entrepreneurial success. And during that time, I, I said, it's an interesting question. There, there's a question out there. If you had all the money in the world, what would you do? I found a second complimentary question saying, when you have no money, what's the vocation you feel called to do? And if your dream and your vocation today aligns, that's a calling. At least that's how I defined it. And I dreamed one day of being an author. And in this moment, I said, I'm going to be an author that actually makes a living doing this. And that's when I devoted myself to becoming an author and writing about entrepreneurship, to discovering what really makes it work and to simplify entrepreneurship. And that's what I've done ever since. Now, I also run some businesses. I've been blessed by opportunities presenting themselves and I'm still an entrepreneur, but first and foremost, I'm a, you know, an author for entrepreneurs with the mission to make entrepreneurship simple. And that's my story. Oh, and Mike, and there's so much that we can, we can unpack there, but like I, and I, I think your calling is you've hit it because I mean, like when I, when I read the book, I was like, oh my God, is this so nice to know that other people have the same problems and right. that. People are admitting it and all like in all this. So yeah, I think, you know, spreading the word is just important because so many people, you know, and, and, and to kind of tee up the next question that I think is probably the most interesting for me is like the, why is this always the problem? And, you know, coming from some context, Mike is, so I interviewed Jack Stack a couple of times, a couple of weeks ago, and we talk a lot about this financial transparency and like, we didn't know the game. Right. And I think he said that he was familiar with your material and, you know, then he mentioned one of the things that he mentioned was that when he helped kind of like he was kind of one of the founders to help kind of create the Inc. 5500 way back in the day. And he, he said, yeah, and I'm sitting there and I know that half the people can't make their next month's payroll. <laughs> and so he's like, I couldn't support it anymore. And then I think about, you know, this whole facade that us entrepreneurs put on of like top line, top line, top line growth and then living off the flow. And then it's all bullshit. And like how, like yeah. someone that as breaking through that. So what, what is the root cause behind this? And then give maybe get some color on like some of those points because I, I you made made a bunch in your book. Sure, 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 sure. So, um, well, there's that that very popular saying that revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, cash is king, 
And uh, there is an absolute truth to that. Uh, but I want to give a little different spin. Uh, revenue, I believe, is stress. And here's what I mean by this. The more revenue or sales we have for our organization, the more obligation we're putting on our organization. And the more obligation we have is the more stress on our organization. We have more responsibility to deliver. And yet, the balance to that stress is profit and is often ignored. So we become very lopsided on stress. Businesses mm -hmm. often say, you know, uh, we don't have any profit. Uh, it's killing me. So we need to sell our way out of this, which ironically actually puts more stress on the organization. Right. Because, right. Because right? we're only doing the stress side. So the balance, the relief for stress is profitability. The more cash you have reserved, uh, to protect your business, uh, the more it affords you in protecting your business. You can handle uh, a surge of work because now you can hire contractors or workers very quickly and easily. You're not beholden to hoping a check comes in so you can pay payroll. So you need <laughs> that balance. Yep. The, the trigger or the reason behind this, I, I, I believe now to my core, is that we as entrepreneurs have been told the wrong formula. So here's my observation. My businesses that I grew, those two I told you about, were never profitable. Uh, it was all about sales, sales, sales. And I looked back upon them and said, wow, how could I get so many of the other elements right? I attracted prospects. I was able to convert them into clients and, and deliver my services. Not perfectly every time I could do it. Uh, they were paying me. I got you know a thousand pieces right in my business. And this is true for, I believe, all entrepreneurs. We do so much that defines a successful business. But there's one little piece that almost none of us gets profit. So I'm like, there's gotta be something finally wrong in our brain like that we're missing this one part. And that's why I said, holy shit, the system we've been given is wrong. And what the traditional teaching is, is that sales minus expenses equals profit. It's the foundational formula for running a business. And what it tells us is that profit comes last. In fact, the vernacular we use is like profits the bottom line or the year end. All those terms, <laughs> right? It's for day. All those terms are like profit comes last. Now, here's how humans are behaviorally wired. When something comes last, that's the same as saying it's insignificant. It can wait. And that's what we do with profit. Since profit is last, we wait until the end of the quarter or actually most businesses wait till the end of the year when the tax returns come in and they say, oh, shucks. You know, that's probably not the word they use, but oh, shucks. <laughs> no no profit, uh, maybe next year. And we literally delay the conversation or consideration of profit for 365 days. So the solution is not to do traditional accounting and saying profit comes last and maybe next year and we got to get better on profit. Instead, it's to really address this at the behavioral level. And what I do in Profit First is we flip the formula. The concept is this, is this sales minus profit equals expenses. And what I'm saying in execution is now, profit comes first. Every time you have a sale, we immediately take a predetermined percentage of that inbound revenue, allocate our profit. So it's actually a cash transfer. The money gets deposited in the bank. We take 10 or 15 or 20%, whatever the numbers we designate, we hide it away from ourselves in a profit account. And now the residual money is used to operate the business. Mm -hmm. What this is, is the pay yourself first principle applied to business. And what happens is when you take your profit first, your business tells you, I'm doing air quotes, but tells you what's truly available to operate the business. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. when, when $1,000 comes in, we don't have $1,000 and that's the fundamental mistake. People say, oh, I got 1,000 bucks and I can spend and pay $1,000 of bills. Wrong. When $1,000 comes in, it has multiple responsibilities. You right. have a profit accountability, you gotta pay yourself a salary, you got tax liabilities. You don't have $1,000 to cover expenses. It may be $600 or $400. Mm -hmm. So we need to 
allocate the money to its intended uses before we spend it. That's the core lesson. Well, in, in, I absolutely love it because it's so true. And honestly, one of my favorite, <laughs> my favorite parts of your book were like when you're sitting with your accountant and your accountant's like doing, I could just, you know, doing your, you're, you're making some noises about like, and then all of a sudden you, you made 15 grand. You're like, where is it? <laughs> it's right. like, it's different than accounting. And it's, it's really truly cash flow and understanding that the health of your business. And so many people just like, it it just doesn't resonate. And what you would, you know, when you, when you said bring it down to the behavioral level, I want to, I want you to, to describe that a little bit more because I think what you mentioned, I might you know, screw up the, the terminology that you said, but it's, it's bank, bank account management. So like, I can't tell you how many times, Mike, I mean, I've almost all the entrepreneurs I know, they look at the bank account and they go, what do we got to do today? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. Right. They got their app. They get, they look at it and then they literally, it's like this total whiplash bullshit nonstop. Yeah. Even no matter how big the company is. Can, so can you explain that and then what you meant by the behavior and then how you set up the accounts and how that whole, whole thing works? Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, if you do that or anyone listening does that where you log in your bank account, I want to tell you there is a term for that. It's called being a human being, right? And, <laughs> right. Uh, and, and that, that's super important because I think what we've been told in traditional uh, thought is you can't do that. Stop that behavior. But what, what I found, so I'm a uh, an amateur behavioral psychologist studying person. Like I've never been trained officially in this, but I just love the concept. So I, I read the literature and watch the trainings on this stuff with some regularity. And what I found is that it is far easier to achieve the outcome we desire if we intercept our natural behavioral path than try to change a habit. Mm -hmm. um, changing ourselves is really freaking hard. But <laughs> if we yeah. can set up a system that allows us to stay exactly the same and not change anything, but achieve the result we want, we'll have extremely high success. You know, what, one thing is like with fitness, um, one thing I did to change my routine and work out with a high degree of consistency is simply put the uh, sneakers and the workout outfit on top of the toilet seat. Because when I get up in the morning, you know, and, and brush my teeth and take a leak, um, I can't open the can without holding my gear. Yeah, and so now, by, now drop it, Mike. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so now, now I'm like, geez, I, I have this up in my hand. Like, I can't deny this. And, and the workout discipline has increased extraordinarily well for me. Well, this is true with our finances. If you do bank balance accounting, that's why I call it bank balance accounting. Bank balance, you log into yeah. your bank account, see how much money you have, and then decide, you know, based upon your, your balance, what you do, you are human. It's exactly what I do. Actually, right before we did this interview, about 15 minutes ago, I was in our bank accounts here at the office, just checking out where our money is. So <laughs> that behavior, I want to tell you, is the best behavior you can have. We just need a system that captures it. Mm -hmm. How we do this in execution is we set up multiple accounts at your bank. And this is mandatory. You can't do this on a spreadsheet or in your accounting system, yeah. even though some people are like, Make why don't I just do it? Because that's not your natural ha behavioral yeah. path. Like I tell people, you know, your accounting system actually has all the accounts already defined. It's called the chart of accounts. Everything's already been tracked and allocated. How's that serving you? Are you profitable? <laughs> Well, we, I have to wait till, but Mike, I have to wait till next month at the 15th, if I do it timely to get all my reports. And then I have this miserable meeting with my CP, my CFO. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's hindsight and we can't act upon it. And we don't even look at it. Like, I don't know anyone that really, it, most entrepreneurs that are being truthful, don't use their accounting system regularly uh, right. to, to measure and control their business. It's more just reflection reports. And honestly, the, the cash flow statement, which is, arguably the most important statement to understand where money's going. 
I don't know anyone that knows how to read it. I, my accountant doesn't know how to read a cash flow statement. So forget that. Here, here's what we, we do that intercepts our natural behavioral path. We set up multiple accounts at our bank. I, I have actually five foundational accounts. One's called the income account. It's a depository account only. It receives the money. We carve up the money from there. We never spend money from it. The next account's called profit. This is a savings account that's used to distribute profit to the shareholders. We have one called owner's comp. Owner's compensation is to pay the owner operator, meaning if you own a business but also work in the business, you're likely the most important employee the company will ever have. We need to pay you a compensation. The owner's comp is to support your lifestyle. It's to pay you a normalized salary if you were to replace yourself. And that's your lifestyle account. Profit account is a bonus as being a shareholder. So those are very distinct and different. The fourth account is called tax. And uh, we started our business for financial freedom. So when tax time comes every quarter, or maybe uh, you pay it annually, or maybe even comes out if you have an S corp or C corp out of your paycheck, your business is actually going to start reserving your taxes for you and then reimburse or pay your taxes for you. And as regards to the business formation you have, your business can pay your taxes. And this is the definition of financial freedom. Never worrying about taxes again. Your business will care for it. And the fifth and the final foundational account is called OPEX. This account is used to pay for the operating expenses of the business. This is the money that you'll use to pay your bills. And now what we do is we have percentages associated with every account. Money comes into the income account, the deposit-only account. We then cut it up based upon these percentages, and then we see what's available for what purpose before we spend a dime, and that's the key. Oh, and it's like, and you just nailed it. It's, it's human behavior. Like, so you're doing it and like, you're making it so that way that this is what people do. They go and they check everything. Go, how much money do I got? What do I got to do? Cause like everybody knows they should have three years of rolling forecasts and budgets and stuff like that. But I, it, it's the same thing. Like, I just don't see anybody that has that kind of stuff. Cause they're just kind of, you know, operating the stuff. And I, the crazy part that I start to see when you look at like the sheer quantity of entrepreneurs that are out there and companies that are out there, Mike, is that you have 85% of all companies that are underneath 5 million in revenue. You know, it, you, you know, there's a sliding scale of how, how the, the bigger ones get, but like, so if you have most of the 6 million privately held companies that have employees that are underneath that and you assume that they're doing 500 grand in EBITDA or, you know, 10%, yeah. When I look at these numbers, Mike, I go, okay, so therefore, and that's, by the way, like when you say, okay, that you read, you know, normalize their EBITDA, you're going, okay, well, that's after all the accountants and the finance people showed that number, but that didn't mean that there was a healthy cash flow. Right? So you're going, that's it, it, like, they might not be making any money at all. Yeah. 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 So the profit first is a cash management system and it's distinctly different than accounting profit. You, those numbers can be, to your point, Ryan, manipulated. And, uh, you know, Enron was profitable until they were shut down because they had zero money. And, uh, <laughs> and listen, I actually worked on that case. My forensics business, we worked on the Enron. Oh, okay. I swear to God, yeah, that was one of our biggest cases. We did, uh, well, we did defense analysis because the uh, law enforcement does the prosecution. And, but we were privy to what's going on. You, you can manipulate numbers from an accounting perspective. And mm -hmm. that is simply, that is a shell game. What profit first is, is a hard fixed cash shifting. So this is not a shell game. We're allocating money to its predetermined use. And it gives you absolute clarity. At the end of each quarter, and as I suggest that every quarter a business does a profit distribution, this is a cash profit distribution. There's literal physical, oh, well, I don't know if it's so physical because it comes out of a bank account, but there's cash. <laughs> and you can make it physical. You can go to the bank and have it printed out in dollar bills if or you wish. Bitcoin, right? <laughs> yeah, or, or Bitcoin, or Bitcoin. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. You can get it in Bitcoin and then you, you get this money. So it, it is actual cash, not accounting profits. Well, and it's so what, what I find so intriguing behind this is like, so 
uh, how many people actually struggle with this? You know, you, I, you give a bunch of, I don't know if the, 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 where the stats come from or if you've got them handy, but like, because I look at it from a valuation perspective, right? Because, you know, they're coming to me going, okay, what are my options? What's it worth? And, and then like, I go, well, you don't have any cash, right? You, mm-hmm. you, this is what your spreadsheets show, but you don't have actually a cash machine. But then you like, how many owners are dealing with this? Because you, I think you said you're invested in EO and all that stuff. I've been a part of all that. And so there's mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, pounding the chest of the revenue and all, but like when you really boil it down, like what, what do you, what do you, what would you say that like the general percentages? Yeah. So, um, the entrepreneurial community, myself in particular, is very much, I was very much about pounding the chest on top line. And it's the, I call it keep up with the entree Joneses. It's, uh, you know, you, the big, the first thing is to qualify for the first level of being a cool entrepreneur is you got to do at least a million dollars in revenue. Like that's your entry ticket, right? right. But then once you get there, and uh, someone's doing five million. It's like, oh, okay, I, I got to beat that guy. And then once you're doing seven million, and you find out your neighbor's doing fifteen million. It's like, I suck. And it's all about this top line <laughs> thinking. I'll tell you, there is no prize. There's no uh, well. There's a couple awards, and and I think I'm not going to pick them by name, but there's some awards that's all about growth. And uh, I, I I kind of detest that because it's not about health. In fact, the the vernacular is often how big is your business. Like you you go out to an entrepreneurial event, and people say. Tell me about the size of your business. How big is it? How many employees do you have? Is it kind of a covert way of finding out the size of the business? And I, I used to be, you know, pounding my chest on the size. And now I, I simply say, well, let's have a different conversation. Let's talk about how healthy our business is. Oh and that's when people like walk away very quickly and don't want to have a conversation. <laughs> um, and, and I didn't either. And I'm not trying to be confrontational. Right. I just think we got to get to the root of what makes a business successful. I am far more impressed today by a business that does, you know, $100,000 in revenue and the owner taking home $80,000 than the business that's doing $2 million and the, home, the owner taking home, you know, $80,000 or less. Uh, I, I want to see a healthy business. So the, the percentages vary. What, what I did was uh, with my team here, we conducted an investigation of about 1,000 of what we call the fiscally elite businesses industry agnostic. It was all different companies, pizza shops, you know, law firms, printer, uh, uh, old print house, a manufacturer, uh, but, but companies that were doing the best in their industry. They mm-hmm. weren't the average. They were the best financially. And we said, what are the percentages you're doing? And we accumulated this and said, based upon different revenue ranges, here's what the fiscally elite are doing. So example, and I'm just picking this out of the air because I don't have it memorized, but a company that's between a million and $5 million in revenue, uh, they're achieving maybe 10% profit and the owner's taking home 15% of that money as pay and they're allocating another 15% toward taxes, which means if you have a $2 million company, you literally have 10%. That's $200,000 of cash at the end of every year sitting there waiting as a profit distribution. You're taking home $300,000 in pay. I mean, that's big money we're talking about. And you have you know, $300,000 saved up for your tax liabilities. Mm-hmm. So you know, these are big numbers. And what we tell people is, those are simply targets. That's what the fiscal elite does. That is not a starting point. Like if your business has zero profit distributions, which is true for most companies, you're barely paying yourself. It's not like overnight we're going to change to $200,000 cash reserve. But starting tomorrow, we're going to take a small step in that direction. A small percentage of money will be allocated to that purpose. And on a quarterly basis, we're going to ramp it up. Maybe it takes you two years, or maybe three, but you'll get there. But you have to start today and take these small, consistent, deliberate steps in growing your profit, your pay, and your reserves for taxes while also cutting costs. And when we reduce the, the OPEX, two things happen. 
One is you'll find that many businesses spend frivolously. I surely has, have mm-hmm. and was, you know, subscriptions that you don't use and so forth. And you can usually cut 10% of costs pretty quickly without hurting the business whatsoever. The bigger opportunity though is increasing margin. How do we sell what we're selling but dictate a higher price point? How do we perceive, you know, change the perception of value or communicate it more effectively so customers see what they're getting and increase our margins, which all goes to the bottom line well, I shouldn't use that term, but it goes to our profit because profit is not the bottom line. It should be the first line, uh, but it all goes uh, toward profit when you increase margin. And you have some really interesting ways of measuring this too. And, and uh, the, with your taps and your percentages, you want to kind of go walk through that because I, I, and why percentages versus specific numbers and stuff? Yeah, yeah. So what we do is for each account, these five foundational accounts, uh, we'll set up a percentage. Now, the, the deposit account, the income account is 100% of that money comes goes in there. But the other accounts will set percentages. And we have two terms. We have TAPs, which we already talked about. That's target allocation percentages. And we have suggested TAPs based upon what the fiscally elite businesses have done. But we also have what's called CAPs. CAPs stands for your current allocation percentages. And the system is this. We'll just do it with profit, but it works with all these accounts. Say the profit target allocation percentage is 10%. And say you have a $1 million business. So ultimately, how that would translate to cash is $1 million times 10% is $100,000 would go to profit on an annual basis. But say you know, $1,000 deposit comes in, we take 10% of that, which would be $100, move it toward profit, and it would leave $900 to operate the business. But that may be too abrupt of a shift. So what we do then is we look at your caps, your current allocation percentages, and every business has caps today. Even if you've never used a system, you just have to find we them. Yeah, we can look at what kind of profit you had. And if you haven't taken any profit, it's real simple. Your caps is zero. Then what we do is we look at the rollout uh, schedule. And let's say we want to roll this out over, we'll say 10 quarters. Let's make it super simple. 10 quarters would be two and a half years. There's four quarters per year. So we want to do this over two and a half years. What we do starting first quarter, we take one-tenth of the target, 10%, and one-tenth of that is 1%. So starting today, we're going to allocate 1% toward profit. Then that means we have to cut our operating expenses by 1%. So all the money was going to OpEx, maybe 100% before. Now, effectively, we're going to cut to 99%. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm ignoring the other accounts for now. Yep, yep, yep. Then next quarter, Q2, we add another 1%. So now profit goes to 2%. We cut OpEx to 98%. And what we see is over these quarters that we're slowly adjusting, we're squeezing our OpEx, forcing efficiency within our business, forcing us to consider margin increase while we allocate more money toward profit. And we do the same kind of rollout schedule for all the accounts, profit, owner's comp, tax, and OpEx. And the general rule is we look to increase our contributions to profit, owner's comp, and tax because our tax liability is often in sync with our, uh, the income we receive personally, and we try to reduce operating expenses. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, the right percentages will find you. These target allocation percentages may not necessarily be perfect for you. Some businesses we find won't achieve those. Other ones we actually find can actually blow by them. So TAPS is just a target based upon other industries and the fiscally elite, but you may find out you can perform better or that going all the way is too much and you got to throttle it down a little bit but if you start this rollout plan, you will find the numbers that work for you perfectly. Well, and the percentages, they, they have a good way of like quickly incorporating all of the micro decisions, right? I mean, so you're right. not having to like look at spreadsheets and look at deviations. <laughs> it's like None of that stuff. None yeah, of that stuff. yeah, like it's, it's human behavior, like you said. And, you know, a couple of things that I like about your, that, well, one almost comment and then another question is, is I like how you really push towards like, pay yourself, right? And the, the, and 
if you take a percentage of your distributions, pay yourself. This is not plow back, push back in, invest in that. There's all this blur between entrepreneurs and the person. It becomes their personal piggy bank and personal bank account to buy their own shit versus like separating all this stuff. That's right. I don't even know how to do that. So maybe you want to make uh, sh- shed a little bit more color on that because you know, I don't know very many people unless we're involved or someone else like yourself or one of the profit per, uh, per first professionals is that they, they have, uh, they have no distinct uh, percentage of distributions that they're going to deal with. It's like, what are we going to do with this? You know what I mean? So even if they were doing something like that, they still have no strategy behind it. So can you explain how you, what you're talking about separates the business and the personal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, there's funny, there's a saying that circulates that, that says that a relationship that an entrepreneur has with their business is a parent-child relationship. Mm-hmm. You're the parent, business is a child, right? You gave life to it, you're nurturing it. One day it'll become mature and strong enough that it can serve you. And I call bullshit on that. I think it's a, it's a bad analogy. I think a far better analogy is that of conjoined twins. You know, our life is linked to our business. We are, we're stuck together. And uh, the process of separating us is a very surgical one, right? As the finances go in our business, so does our personal life or vice versa. So we need to be very aware of how linked our finances are. Here's how we manage it through the Prop First system. The owner's comp account is your lifestyle account. So as we fund that percentage, the money will come out of there will be on a regular basis. If you do payroll weekly, you do it weekly. If you do bi-weekly or, or whatever, or semi-monthly, you take it out during that time. The owner's comp account is used to pay the owner or owners if there's multiple owners. And you adjust your lifestyle to live off of that. The problem that many entrepreneurs, many people have is that we maximize our lifestyle for all income. So the day you get, you know, if you're an employee, the day you get that, that $100 a week raise, we will be spending $100 more a week instantly. <laughs> and the problem is the day you get laid off from work or as an entrepreneur, the day the sales drop, that's, those expenses are sustained, but now we don't have the revenue or income to support it. And that's when we can accumulate debt and panic and all that stuff ensues. So in the profit first system, money will come out of the owner's comp account and that's what you set your lifestyle to live off of. We also, in the book, I write about the profit first life. I suggest replicating the system in our home life. So even for myself, I have multiple accounts at my house. My wife and I, we live off debit cards. We never use credit in the unique circumstance that we do in the, where we just ha- are forced to use a credit card. We have it set up that gets automatically paid by cash instantly. So uh, we have multiple accounts, but we have one for an automobile, for example, at my house. So when my income comes out of my owner's comp account, it goes into an income account in my personal accounts and a percentage of that money goes to the automobile. And when we buy a car, our next car, we're going to pay cash for it because we're paying for an automobile that we don't own, we're saving for it in advance. So it's the system replicates itself at home. Mm-hmm. The beautiful part is with the profit account. Every quarter, the profit accumulates. And as of us recording this, we're halfway through Q3 now. Um, so in the end of September, uh, Q3 will complete itself. I get a distribution of a portion, not all of it, but the portion of the profit account. And then when that comes to the owner, the r- rule of profit is to reward yourself. Do whatever you want. Celebrate with it. It, it is not, it is not, I repeat, ever to go back into the business. You do not plow back or push back. Those terms actually disgust me because what, they, what that says is, oh, I called a profit, but I'm going to spend it in the business. If you spend money in the business, that's an expense. Something isn't a profit temporarily. It's either a profit permanently or it's an expense permanently. There's those two choices. So when money comes out of a profit account, don't use the crutch for the business. The business must learn to live off its operating expenses. That's what a healthy business does. The profit comes out to the owner you use it now to celebrate because that's the unexpected reward. Mm-hmm. So we, our definition of celebration, sometimes we, uh, 
we go on an amazing vacation or we actually bought a hot tub last quarter with our profit <laughs> distribution. But the, the times before we're like, you know what, we're going to eradicate because I had time, I had personal debt. When we had personal debt, it was just using to whack that out. We saved for all our children's colleges. So those are all prepaid. And so, you know, we save toward retirement. That's actually my mission starting this quarter going forward is 20% of all inbound cash to myself is going to retirement savings. So we're really amplifying. We've always been saving toward retirement, but now we're really amplifying that. So you define what celebration is, but it needs to go to the owners of the business. Just like if you own public stock, I own Ford. When Ford sends its quarterly profit distributions, it sent me 13 bucks last quarter. I didn't say, oh my gosh, I need to go to work at, on the line at factories at Ford's factory. And I didn't say, I'm going to return <laughs> this return this to Ford as a plowback. No, I said, I invested in Ford. I took on risk. This is going to me. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing with the stock you own in your own business. When that comes out, that money is for your purposes. You don't have to earn it by working and you don't plow it back. You use it in the way you want to use it. So, and, and I think it's unbelievably important to just really digest this because I mean, I don't know really almost any entrepreneurs that have that distinction between the, you know, and like you said, you, it's, you, you performed the surgery, right? You severed the relationship with the business financially where you're, it's not all, you know, mingled together. And, you know, so one of the other questions I would have, because, you know, growth consumes capital, Mike, right? I mean, yeah. I, and unfortunately in today's world, it's all about like, we're seeing these tech IPOs. I mean, yeah. I, you're, I'm going to sideline for a sec. I'm going to digress. I had this conversation with this woman who is, uh, she raised, holy crap. What was it? She raised a few million bucks on a pre, like the whole freaking thought of a pre-money valuation is so funny to me. <laughs> oh my God. Ridiculous. Right. I mean, yeah. Wait, so we're going to, we're going to value a pre-money, pre-revenue at 10 million bucks. Like what? How is it even possible? Yeah. yeah. So like that, unfortunately we pushed a lot of that and that's a lot of this, the news that we hear and all that stuff. But the, you know, in, in a typical business, growth consumes capital. So therefore you have to be growing. And so how do you manage and balance that? And one specific story is one of my best friends, um, he owns a bunch of nurse, uh, their hospice, high acuity care uh, companies. And the, the, the challenge is, you know, he's got, you know, from a, an investment perspective, he's got a bunch of real estate. So he's got capital tied up in his real estate. And then he's also got, you know, so he makes a different percentage on his real estate than he does in the operating business. You know, he'd be making 25% uh, on his money in this business. And so, but he's stuck right now because he, he could build a bunch more locations, but he's been meeting with equity partners and, you know, he's trying to refinance and pull the money out of the buildings, but then his bank would not necessarily like it, all these different dynamics where he's just literally stuck. So how do you, how do you balance the, okay, the company is an asset and it's an investment and, yeah. you know, do you, do you follow my question that I'm asking? Yeah, no, I totally get it. It's actually one of my favorite and, and one of the most common questions I get is, or challenges I should say is Mike, Mike, it takes money to grow a business and you're saying, take your profit first. You're saying you're going to stunt my growth. We have now over 150,000 businesses that have implemented profit first. We've over 3000 document case studies. And I think we're running for 200,000 businesses by the end of 2019 to have implemented profit first. So my, my perspective and therefore my opinion, I should say, is pretty strong on this. Mm-hmm. What I found is businesses that drive profitability, take their profit first, actually outpace the industry average in growth. They grow faster than the people that are plowing back and putting more money in. And I know that sounds bass-ackwards, but we have an explanation. We know why now. Mm-hmm. So 
here's what happens. The more money we put into our business, the more opportunities it opens for us. And we actually spend money more frivolously. There's more kind of testing, if you will. Oh, I got some OPM, other people's money. Let me try Facebook ads and let me get that nice office space because you know, that'll make, you know, and that's, that's literally how money gets blown. And, and I've been there. I, I, I did an angel raise uh, for a business of mine and I did exactly that. I'm like, oh, I need the nice office and I need the expensive car so that I impress people, which is total BS, total emotion, but I backed it with this nonsense logic. What we found is when businesses take their profit first uh, and there's less money for OPEX, they have to be more selective in their spend. And when you're more selective in your spend, you have to identify what services and products actually yield a return. What you know, expenses actually have a true proven ROI, not a estimated or hopeful ROI. Mm-hmm. And when you do this, when you narrow down the products that are actually successful in generating revenue for you and you're, you're concentrating your effort, you also narrow down your customer base um, to a type of customer. For you to sustain with less operating expenses, you need to bring about more repeatability and efficiency. It's the only way to do that. Yeah, yeah. And repeatability and efficiency happens when you become a niche specialist, kind of like a, a, a cardiovascular surgeon. When you say, I'm going to just do heart surgery, uh, you start focusing on customers that just have heart attacks, right? You, you don't say, well, hey, if you have a cold and sniffles, I'll talk with you. You actually disregard them. And the more heart surgery you do, the bigger your reputation and is, and, and more customers will come to you and pay you more because you've done more of it. That's called niche specialization. By taking our profit first, it forces us to become category authorities and we can attract customers at a higher premium, more profit, and those customers talk to other customers and our reputation builds, so we actually grow faster. And we have case study after case study of this phenomena happening. So it's, it's almost ironic. But when you take your profit first, you become better at what you do and you actually grow faster because you're better at what you do. Well, which is, I, and by the way, which makes, you know, repeatability and like, and scalability is more of a valuable company. So you're going to literally get what you want faster. And, but a couple, a couple of clarifying questions, Mike, on that is like, so like, let's assume that you say, okay, I'm taking 50% of the distributions, right? So I'm going into whatever the tap is that you got into your owner's comp. And yeah. so and the business is going to self fund itself on this. So let's say you've got a repeatable like niche that you're marching towards. You're going, I, like I look, you're, you're, you're cranking along and you've done some version of profit first, but mm-hmm. you know that the market is X big and you're only doing this. Would you recommend it where you would literally need like a cash infusion to like build the next location or to do, you know what I mean? Like we're yeah. not doing it out of just testing with other people's money? How would, how do you kind of analyze those decisions? Yeah. So what, what I would do is uh, proactively reserve money for specific things where I have a known and quantified ROI. Mm-hmm. So in your, your uh, example there where you said, Hey, if we add a new location, we'll get X. The, the first challenge, and this is where many entrepreneurs miss it is what's the guarantee of that? Like what's the probability and I want the hard facts backing it. Often it's gut instinct. Like, oh, if we had another location, we can double our sales because we have, you know, X number of sales here, we'll double the sales. Okay, what's that based upon? Well, I just assume. Let's get the hard facts that prove that location will do it. And so we need to take pause and really get to the test and measure phase uh, of what something will yield. If I know with an extreme degree of confidence mm-hmm. that $1 will return $2 in like say 90 days, that's an effing great investment. And that's the one of the exceptions where I say, okay, now we're going to actually pull money from the profit account, which I prefer not to do, or we're going to have reserved money specifically for this investment. That's mm-hmm. a good CapEx. So we actually, in our own business here, we have an account we call CapEx. And what we do is we reserve 
uh, I think it's now 5% of our revenue goes to this. The funny thing is we don't have CapEx expenditures in the normal sense. We are a membership organization for one of my companies here, but opportunities spring up. One opportunity sprung up, and this was about six months ago, a building came for sale uh, in our town, in our accountant. We talked with them. They suggested, yeah, you should buy a building for tax purposes and the size of your business and blah, blah, blah. And we said, okay. And a building came up and um, it's a fire sale. And we walked in and we said, listen, we're the only business here that can just pay cold cash for this. Um, mm -hmm. We can buy this from you tomorrow. And that, that triggered the negotiations. Actually, as we investigated the opportunity further, it's not a fit for us and we backed out. But we were, in the, were the only company that came to them in that position. They're actually struggling still to sell the building. So what I think every business can do is create a reserve for opportunity. But it doesn't mean the next opportunity presents itself is the right opportunity. You really need to calculate it out. But there is opportunities to uh, leverage your own money. And I'm, I'm not totally anti-debt. I mean, sometimes the opportunity is so great and you, you need to use OPM for it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's good in the case where you know you have a guaranteed return. We just need to take that pause and calculate it. And, and I think we always should have skin in the game too. Because when I got other people's money, it's so easy to blow other people's money. But when, when my money's also in there, I'm a lot more cautious. Well, it's interesting. And, and I, I'm following and tracking everything you're saying, especially like when it was like, applies to most businesses where you just, you really don't know <laughs> like the next location or the next, this or the next product line. I mean, it is a lot of skeptical, like, you know, unless you have a guaranteed customer that said, I will buy this much over the next two years. Right. But you know, my, the case today I was specifically thinking of for all intents and purposes, it's like assisted living. So you like, there's a per door per day per profit. I mean, it's, it's real estate plus operation. So it's like so guaranteed <laughs> that yeah. it's, pretty crazy. But um, yeah, I mean, it is. So, I mean, like, essentially it's make sure you're building enough profit to make sure that you can afford to do it. <laughs> it's just yeah. that simple, right? Yeah, it, it really is that simple. And there's a thing I, I've been recently studying. I don't know that well, but it's called Oxum's Razor. And it's a concept, I think from the 1200s, basically the, the, the theory is this, that the simpler the solution, the more likely it's the right solution. And I think when it comes to finances, we entrepreneurs add unnecessary complexity because it seems too easy that you just file profit first and you just allocate percentages. It literally seems like it can't be that easy, but it literally is that easy. And I think it's because of Oxum's rule or Oxum's razor, I should say, in this concept of the simplest solution is the one we're most likely to abide to and therefore be the most successful. And that's why it works the best. I mean, sim as simple as it can possibly be, but not sim too simple, right? <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly, exactly. Warren Buffett's got some kind of cool, like they talk about cash. I saw yesterday, he's got $122 billion and he doesn't know what to buy. <laughs> oh my God. I, I wish I had that problem at times. <laughs> uh, this has been an absolute blast, Mike. I, wanna, I know you got to uh, cut off here shortly. And you know, if you're, you know, what's the best way to get started? You know, if, because this is, like you said, it's not, you're, you're, you're not telling someone to change their behavior. I think is no. But like, you know, how do you, how do you understand all this and what's the first Yeah, thing? yeah. So uh, the real, real best way to get started, sadly, is to have a financial heart attack. Um, sadly, <laughs> many entrepreneurs don't waken up to this. You know, they hear about Prop First, like, oh, that makes such great sense. And then they never do it. And it's only when they come back a year later and say, oh, I lost every penny and I was forced to do this, did I do it? And holy crap, it works. And I get those messages regularly. So that's the sad reality. I think the alternative way to instigate change is look at your current path and get, re if you're not content, get really pissed. Meaning if you're 
surviving check by check. If you're not taking a quarterly profit distribution, start saying shame on me. Like you get pissed about it, get angry because that's not the, the fiscally elite companies. The reason we started the business, the dream we had was to be financially profitable consistently to, to be experiencing financial freedom. So if you're not get really pissed, I think that's enough of a trigger. And then I hope the book, I mean, I don't know, 17 bucks or something on Amazon. I, th I think the $17 investment will be a life changer if you're pissed and then you read the book and execute on it. We also have a group of, uh, accounting professionals that can take it to the next level. We call them profit first professionals. You can Google them and they can help you, uh, you know, out with that. And then the, the last thing I just want to share is, uh, the access to the book. It's actually, you can get free chapters from it. And all of my resources are available for free at my website. It's MikeMichalowitz.com. Most people can't spell that, Ryan. So as you know, my nickname <laughs> is Mike Motorbike. Actually, I've never driven a motorbike, so that's kind of ironic. But go to MikeMotorbike.com. That's the shortcut. And it'll bring you to my site. Click on Get the Tools. You'll see it nice and clear. Get the tools. And uh, all these resources are available for you to get started today. I love it. I love it. And then one last little final question for my own curiosity, Mike, do you, do you have any stats about like with all these people, like how people's valuations are? I mean, there's gotta be a direct correlation to. Oh yeah, dude. That's my favorite part of that. You know, it's so funny. Almost no one asks me that yet. Yeah, that's my favorite part. And I never think about bringing it up. Valuations go up. <laughs> you know, they, it's extraordinary. It's not too abnormal to go up about a 400 percent evaluation, a four times valuation. So a business that's not profitable, that could sell for a million dollars, that is consistently profitable and can prove it, um, goes up to about $4 million in valuations. And you think about from the, the buyer's perspective, if they see a business that's struggling to make money, they're the ones that goes and fix it. If they see a business that's consistently churning out profit, they're buying a cash ATM. Yep. That is significant to them and they will pay a huge premium for that. Well, and it, and and I know like it, it it just that's why I didn't even bring it up too early because I'm like everything that you talk about is the first step, and that like the craziest thing that I've realized is like after me because like our whole thing is increase the value of your company will then increase your like your options to get what you want right I mean so there's this whole direct correlation but then as I uncover this ninety five percent of the time they need your system's help first to build the cash, to build the valuation. <laughs> so it's just like this whole like domino effect. And I, I think, I, you know, a lot of the people, they jump too far ahead and then they don't even know where to turn after that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and one other interesting thing, and this also further increases valuations is when your business is perpetually profitable and it's a, you know, that cash ATM, why sell it? Right. So that, that's the question comes right. up. Like, oh, I don't need to sell this. And so when people come suiting and saying, Hey, um, would you want to sell your business? You're like, no. And they're like, please. And you're like, nah. And then the valuation goes up more and more and more. Yep. I know. It's it's so true. It's so true. Mike, this has been an absolute blast having you on the show. Thank you so much. Ryan, it's, it was a joy to be with you. Thanks, my brother. Anything in that episode resonated with you, one is pick up Mike's book, read it. The system is just absolutely genius because it goes to behavior regardless of how big you are and how big your company is. It creates a cash machine and that is what Mike's talking about is the first step 
to building a valuable company because then you have repeatable cash flow. Like he said at the end there, your company can be worth up to four times as much because you've created an ATM. Then you can analyze all your exit options and your timing and what you want and why you want it. So if you're not making profit and accumulating cash, first read Mike's book, reach out to one of his professionals. The second thing is if you're making profit and you wanna increase the value of your company, analyze your, your exit options, check out our Growth and Exit Bootcamp that's in Minnesota on the 8th, 9th, and 10th of October, and also in Dayton, Ohio on the 12th, 13th, and 14th of November. And we are giving a crash course to owners so they can literally understand what their valuation is, how to increase it, what their exit options are, how to hire their team of advisors. It's literally everything you need to know in a three-day crash course. Check it out at our website, arcona.io. Otherwise, I will see you next week. Where I interview Dwayne Smith, who is running a close to a billion dollar insurance agency. He's got 65 LLCs. He's got perpetual legacy built into his cash machine of this financial engine of insurance and wealth management, all these things that they're doing. And he has a combination of the profit first plus the great game of business plus these operating systems, which has built him something to be really proud of and that we can all take a lot of how he actually structured this machine. So with that being said, I will see you next week.